the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Speakeasy and flapper girls, flagpole sitting and bathtub gin. The 1920s was a decade of liberation and excess, especially excess. The post-World War I economic boon had everyone in a state of euphoria in spite of the success of the temperance movement. By the close of the decade, it seemed as if the party would go on forever, until it didn't. October 29, 1929, the party was officially over. The stock market, following four days of extreme volatility, finally saw a collapse in prices that would lead to the largest decline in U.S. history. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, 90 years ago today, dropped 25 percent, losing $30 billion in value. The equivalent today would be over $396 billion. It was more than then the total cost of World War I. It destroyed confidence in Wall Street markets and led to the Great Depression. And it would be 35 years before the markets fully recovered. 35 years. Can it potentially happen again? Joining us next is investment expert. He's the host of Phil's Gang, heard nationally at 12 noon Pacific time, locally here on AM 1220 KDOW, the Bay Area's business leader. And Phil Grandy, great to have you on the program. Oh, thank you very much. Um, it's interesting how huh? you go back and look at history. It's everything, nothing changes. It's amazing. It's just everything happened in 29 and in 2001 and 2008, all the same, all the same. It's all greed, all greed. You know, the interesting thing is that all of these events that you just touched on from the crash of 1929, the 90th anniversary of which we mark today, to the dot-com bubble, the crash of or the recession of 2001, the repeat recession related to real estate and derivatives in 2008, 2009, and, and all seem to have a common factor, and that is sort of the, the underlying driving force behind the markets, that while, yes, there are events and geopolitical events and economic events that impact the markets, but at the end of the day, the old-fashioned events related to fear and greed, they really tend to have some of the greatest impact, don't they? They do. And, and what's interesting about 1929, well, and it's interesting when you study this thing and you see what they did when they took all the banks – and they made it a supermarket. You could go and you know you, you could buy insurance. You could buy, you know go buy a house, buy a car, and they took all that money. Think about all that money went into one pot, and these banks were using that money to go out and speculate like crazy in 1929. And and it was very smart that after the crash, they said we got to break these guys up. That was the Glass-Steagall Act, as you know. And that was a very good move because they said, look, if you're going to be a savings bank, you're a savings bank. You want to be a commercial bank, you're just going to be a commercial bank. You want to be an insurance company, you're an insurance company. And we never had a problem. We never had a problem after that until, what was it, city, it was city. Uh, what's the guy, the city? He, he, he wanted to bring his uh, insurance company in. Remember, he wanted to buy uh, 
oh, what was his name with Citibank? He wanted to buy the insurance company, and he finally got, uh, he, he paid something in Congress where he could go in and put everything back under one umbrella. What is his name from Citibank? Oh, I can't remember his name. He was involved in so many deals, but he but he ran it. But what's interesting uh, on on all of these all these uh, uh, crashes, the, right up to today, people don't have any idea how these banks were never fixed. They have no idea how this economy. We we never had economic growth. If you go back from the crash, uh, two thousand eight, all the way up today, people think, oh, we we've, our, we the market went up three hundred fifty percent. We've had a recovery. We never had a recovery. What they did is they masked a stock bubble for economic recovery. We never had an economic growth. It was always the bubble growth, but not economic growth. And they kept masking it as economic growth, the bubble. And people have no clue. These banks, you mentioned derivatives. People have no idea these banks are broke. If you go back to these derivatives, you had to count these derivatives back in, these banks are illiquid, for God's sake. Last week, remember the banks needed to get a quick $185 billion fix because they couldn't, they, couldn't, uh, they couldn't meet their obligations overnight, short-term uh, loans to each other, and they had to do a robo-loan of like $183 million overnight because the banks could not meet. They didn't have enough cash to meet their overnight requirement for short-term loans. Exactly what happened right before 2008. So it's amazing how everything's still the same. And, of course, that's not the only such time here in the last couple of months that they've done one of these quick infusions of cash to address shortfalls in short-term loans. And it's interesting to put it into perspective because aside from some of the more societal manipulation that took place, the creation of all of this alphabet soup of organizations um, and agencies under the Roosevelt administration in an attempt to try to bring some relief to people. America at the time dealing with 25% unemployment rate. A lot of people saw their income levels of those fortunate enough to still be working to see their income levels cut in half. But I was shocked to find out, Phil, that statistically, it took the Dow 35 years to recover from its high. So when it closed at its, its high in, in September of 1929, um, it took fully 35 years. It wasn't until November of 1954 that the markets actually regained that September of 29 high. And I, I think that's demonstrative of the notion that if the market's left of their own with not a lot of manipulation going on, it takes some time to recover. You look at the meteoric rise in the Dow just since the dip that took us to 65,000 and change or 60, yeah, 6,500 and change back in March of 2009 to where the markets are today. Is it indicative of the notion that there's been an awful lot of artificial manipulation to achieve those numbers? Sure. You know, it's all cheap money and they kept on printing and printing money and they kept interest rates low and every time they try to bump it up the market would go down and the stock buybacks is what blew these markets up and the stock buybacks is the worst thing you can do to an economy because what you're doing is you're taking money the ceos the money they have set aside for buying new equipment new machinery so that they could increase productivity so give you a, a, a raise they go in and they steal that money out of that, not steal, but they take the money out of the account and, and they they buy their own stock. So that means they can't increase productivity and, and the folks on the floor, they don't get a wage increase. And that's why it used to be a felony. 
because it was a felony because when, when the CEOs used to go into those accounts, the capital investment accounts, and take the money out for their own use to do stock buybacks, that was a felony. They went to jail for that. Well, in the end, in the end of the day, it's almost like a, a, another form of pump and dump in the sense that the real beneficiaries of stock buybacks has nothing to do with the customers of the company nor the employees, but rather the stockholders. They really are the ones who singularly benefit from this, aren't they? Yeah, it's the top, very top one percent, and one one hundred and one percent, and that's where all the money goes. And the problem is, you're draining it out of the economy. So, like you just said, you hit it right on the head. And when they take money out of the capital investment account, instead of going buying that new machinery so that they can increase productivity for the future, by taking that money and doing and, and buying their own shares, all they're doing when they buy their own shares is they just they can boost if you have a million shares and let's say your earnings are horrible let's say your earnings are two percent and and your stocks at ten, ten bucks so all they do is go take the million shares drop it to a half a million and because you're spreading your earnings over less stock that two percent earnings goes to five and your stock goes from ten to fifteen that's all fake and that's why they kept interest rates low for so long because the guys at the very top were making all the money and the workers aren't making any money. And what they did, they created a bubble for the workers. They said, we'll drop interest rates down for you so you can go buy a car, you can get more credit cards, you can get a student loan. So people didn't know any better. They thought, well, I must be okay because I'm looking at the stock market. They're giving me credit cards. I can go down to the auto place. They'll give me a car. And the stock market's going up, so that must be the economy is good. And then you take all these fake financial shows, these cable shows, and they reinforce that. I'll never forget the day that the, the guy on CNBC came out. But, but he came out and he said, isn't this wonderful? Look at this. Consumers are strong. They're spending more than their income. This is wonderful. I always fell out of my chair, but that's, that's the whole idea, is just to keep you spending and make you feel good. Keep your see, and, and that's the other thing that's interesting. That lowering the interest rates so low is a confidence game, because as long as they can get people drive they drive interest rates so low, so they can buy houses and cars and so forth, their confidence goes up. But the people have no idea; they're not buying a house or car; they're buying debt, and and that's why this thing is so cruel. Uh, the stock buyback—it's so cruel, uh, and 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 people aren't getting wage increases, and they think they're okay because they got a new car. And they think they're okay because they got a student loan. They think, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. And that's when you hear them say, well, confidence is up. That's where they get their confidence from. And that, again, was why it was a criminal act because you're, you're breathing in to the guy in the street working hard. I must be okay. Stock market's going up. But we're going to see this time here with keeping interest rates so low for so long for 10 years, they can't raise rates, Craig. They just can't raise them. You've got to get these rates back up. But remember, since, 19, since 2015, we raised rates nine times, and every time the market went back down. They can't get above 2.5% because the economy can't absorb it. Think about that. It can't absorb a 2.5% rate in 10 years. 
That's why it's going to be the biggest crash you ever had. If you've just joined our conversation, we're reflecting back on the events of 90 years ago today. It was the stock market crash of 1929, the worst such crash in U.S. history. To be sure, there have been similar events along the way, but none so long, none so terrible, none so devastating as the Wall Street crash of 1929. Can we say that it would never happen again? Or are we, in fact, perhaps setting ourselves up for the next great crash? And if some of the prognosticators are correct, this one could make the last one look like child's play. Our conversation today with investment expert, the host of Phil's Gang, nationally syndicated. And you can catch the program on AM 1220 KDOW, the Bay Area's business leader, every Monday through Friday at 12 noon. Information, too, on the web at philsgang.com. We'll come back to more of our conversation, more historical insights, and a word of warning from Phil Grandy as our special look back at the Crash of 29 continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to The Conversation. Craig Roberts along with a very special guest. He is Phil Grandy. Phil, of course, is host of the nationally syndicated Phil's Gang Money and Investment Program heard weekday afternoons here in the San Francisco Bay Area at 12 noon on the Bay Area's business leader, AM 1220 KDOW. Phil has been engaged in the world of investing and investment education for the better part of 30-something years now. And he's joined us today to talk a bit about some of the historical perspective on the great crash of 29, the 90th anniversary of which is today, and then, too, to have a word of warning looking forward. You touched on a couple of the issues, Phil, that are synergenic, I think, to this sense of a word of warning about the future of the U.S. economy, and that is the the very untenuous position that the Fed has put itself in by continuing to drop the prime rate. Now, we know certainly in, in short-term history over the last decade, um, the, the then-chair of the Fed, Ben Bernanke, uh, right place at the right time, perhaps. Um, he had studied for his doctorate um, the Wall Street crash of 1929. He was aware of many of the mistakes that the government made, also many of the things the government perhaps could have done that was not done. And so there was a lot, I think, that he was able to do, along with Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson, to stave off things from getting even worse. The problem, of course, is that they've put us on a bit of a path that the current Fed finds itself in a very difficult position to break the habit of, and that is this notion that uh, following years of things like pouring cash into the markets, printing money through qualitative easing, they've also learned to manipulate Wall Street by continuing to drop the overnight interest rate, the prime rate. And in fact, we anticipate that happening when the Fed meets tomorrow on this very issue and will likely drop, if everything that we've read can be believed, likely drop it by another 25 basis points. Here's my question. Doesn't this appear to be sort of um, dispensing with all of the tools that they have, limited though they may be, in dealing with a real economic situation? So in other words, if the numbers on Wall Street are as superlative as we're told that they are, if the unemployment rate is as low as we're told that it is, uh, lower perhaps than even going back to the, the last low point of 1965, if business is so happy, if consumer confidence 
confidence is so good. What's the motivation then to continue to lower the prime interest rate? And if it gets too low, and we do have another major economic event, what's left for the Fed to do? The pressure is on now because Trump knows that if a recession hits, he's going to be in deep trouble. So he thinks, again, by getting rates back down to near zero again, that there's going, they're going to create demand. People will start borrowing again. It's not going to happen this time. Going back to zero interest is not going to be what it was in 2008 when we started. No, because all their bullets are gone. They can't raise rates. They, they, people think, get it back down to zero again. Get it back to zero, and the market's going to take off again. It's not going to because there's just too much debt now over the last 10 years. Here, here's what's really interesting. You, you, get, you just brought up a great point. They said the S&P all-time new high in the last couple of days. So I'm watching the bond market, and everybody said, oh, oh, and also, remember how they rigged on October 15th? They took the three-month treasury. And remember how we had the inversion? The inversion, the yes. Treasury was, and they rigged it back so the three-month Treasury was now lower than the 10-year Treasury so they could put out a narrative, oh, look, we don't have an inversion anymore. That means there's not going to be any any recession. So forget your gold. You don't need gold. Gold drops. And then all of a sudden, everybody's jumping out of the bond market in the last couple of days. And I look. And when people sell their bonds, yields go up, interest rates go up. But guess what? So shouldn't the dollar. But the dollar's going down when they sold all, and the interest rates are going up. So yields going up, dollars going down. That's a killer because prices are going up, everything's going up, but your dollar purchasing uh, power is going down. That's telling you prices are going to go up, everything's going to go up, and that's a killer. So to say we hit an all-time new high and then turn around and the yields are going up, but the dollar didn't go up. That means that you're heading for a real trouble with that. And that's a big signal. That's as big a signal as an inversion of that yield curve. But I was amazed how they inverted it back. The other thing you, you touched on, which was good, how, how you talked about how they interfere with the free market. Do you remember when, when it was uh, Dodd and, uh, and uh, Frank, Barney Frank, and remember how the uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie, if we went to a bank to get a mortgage, right, they would sell the, bank, the, the bank loan to Freddie and Fannie. But you had to have a hell of a credit score. The bank, to, get, to loan you money, and they're going to sell it to Fannie or Freddie, they had to have great credit scores. He came in, Barney Frank, and he's the one that destroyed that and caused the whole housing bubble to collapse. Because he went in and he said, no, no, we're going to take, I want you to take anybody's credit anybody's credit no more is it just exclusive for high credit because they, they're promising how they're going to get everybody's going to own a house in atlanta and in the, in the center of the city and all that well and not just anybody's money but here's the frightening thing phil and that is hey we'll not only take anybody's money we'll take anybody's word so if they just exactly. come to you and say yeah i earn two hundred and seventy five thousand dollars a year yeah they wrote that down and this whole notion of income verification completely non-existent easy credit and when and when you take Fannie and Freddie they went broke remember we had when we had to come out with a hundred and I forget 180 billion or whatever bail, bail them out but that was a safety valve they're saying look well you can go buy a house but if you're going to sell me the loan First National Bank they better have a good credit or we're not going to take it under Fannie and Freddie and they blew that up so the the whole deal no matter if you go back to 1929 
or you go back to to the uh, uh, dot com, or you go back to the housing con or the QE con. Right now, it's always the same thing. Wall Street cares about Wall Street. They don't care about the economy, and to keep that, you know, keep pushing rates down and keep doing this, uh, you know, the stock buybacks. It's over. It's done. Every signal out there. Anybody thinking that they're going to drop rates and the stock market's going to roar again? It's not going to happen. It's over. They're out of ammunition. They can't raise rates. That's too high. It is so over. They've been able to hold this market up artificially for so long because they have a printing machine. You and I can't do that. We don't have a printing machine. But it's over. It's really over. If you've just joined our conversation, we're reflecting back on the events of 90 years ago today. It was the stock market crash of 1929, the worst such crash in U.S. history. To be sure, there have been similar events along the way, but none so long, none so terrible, none so devastating as the Wall Street crash of 1929. Can we say that it would never happen again? Or are we, in fact, perhaps setting ourselves up for the next great crash? And if some of the prognosticators are correct, this one could make the last one look like child's play. Our conversation today with investment expert, the host of Phil's Gang, nationally syndicated. And you can catch the program on AM 1220 KDOW, the Bay Area's business leader, every Monday through Friday at 12 noon. Information, too, on the web at philsgang.com. We'll come back to more of our conversation, more historical insights, and a word of warning from Phil Grandy as our special look back at the crash of 29 continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to The Conversation. Craig Roberts, along with a very special guest, he is Phil Grandy. Phil, of course, is host of the nationally syndicated Phil's Gang Money and Investment Program, heard weekday afternoons here in the San Francisco Bay Area at 12 noon on the Bay Area's business leader, AM 1220 KDOW. Phil has been engaged in the world of investing and investment education for the better part of 30-something years now. And he's joined us today to talk a bit about some of the historical perspective on on the great crash of 29, the 90th anniversary of which is today, and then, too, to have a word of warning looking forward. You know, when you talk about many of the fundamentals, I mean, to be sure, there are a number of yardsticks that are used, performance on Wall Street, the various other indexes is one way of looking at it, looking at things such as inflation, although the government has come in, as we suggested earlier, and manipulated some of those numbers by removing fuel and food. So if you don't go anywhere, don't heat your house, don't eat, then I guess you're doing okay. Uh, But then you start to look at other fundamentals that hit a little bit closer to home. Uh, Set aside easy credit for a moment. What's happening with wage stagnation? Um, When you couple that with out-of-control increases in arenas such as education, ask anybody with a student loan, or um, out-of-control costs in other arenas such as uh, consumer debt, and then you add to that the federal deficit, which is, you know, all in all fairness, that's that not some magical debt that's owed by some strange people in Washington, D.C. That's not owed by the Treasury. We are the Treasury. So that debt that's been run up, that's at 22 heading towards $23 trillion, that's collectively owed by all Americans. And so I have to wonder, Phil Grandy, when you look at 
inflation in certain areas, the ignoring of inflation in other areas to artificially reduce the numbers, the stock buybacks to artificially increase stock value, then wage stagnation, and the fact that the Federal Open Market Committee continues to to manipulate artificially so, I think, the, the prime rate to, to just push or kick the can further down the road, doesn't a lot of this seem to be setting up a perfect storm that unlike 1929, when there was not a huge federal deficit hanging over our heads, we weren't recovering from one war and about to head into another one, that unlike then, we are setting ourselves up for potentially an even bigger disaster, particularly when you see the interconnectivity now of world economies? Oh, a- absolutely, because it's not just Wall Street anymore. I mean, everybody, for, you know, we're, we're one economy. And if you look at Europe, you look at the world economy, I mean, it, why do you think they, they, they've been dumping the euro and coming over here and buying our dollars, for God's sakes? I mean, people are panicked. Oh, China, you remember China? China, China would just keep building buildings, and, he, and they didn't care if anybody lived in them. They kept their economy going by building buildings, building dams, building things where, where there's no water to hold back. Just keep building, and 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 that's what keeps the whole economy going. Because when China keeps building, they get their materials from Africa. They get their materials from here, America. We send them over bulldozers. That's gone now. That used to always be our safety net. You know, low interest rates and China and, and China growing. That's over. They China is over, and they're not in great shape. And so there's no place to hide. But I will tell you this: the one place that I would go right now is I would still go with gold mining stocks. I think gold mining stocks will continue to do incredibly well. I think people will go to these, uh, uh, when this thing starts breaking, you may have to take a little pain, but you start out slow. But I'm telling all my gang members right now, start buying money, mining stocks. Be patient with them, because that's where everybody is going to run to. They're not going to run to the bond markets. The bond market's going to implode, for God's sakes. And, and here's a question, Phil, uh, particularly uh, troubling for this are people that are on fixed incomes, people that are already at retirement, that if there is a major economic event and they are overextended in the equity markets and they take a major haircut and they have a advisor who's not paying any attention or who's simply um, earning a living based on the number of buys that they do and so they're purely commissioned so uh, whether or not you make a million or make a penny they don't care uh, these people are they not the most potentially vulnerable because the one thing that they do not have on their side is time time to recover uh, they, they're not going to recover this one this is going to be huge and anybody right now uh, that if, if, if unless you go to mining stocks or gold, uh, I, I don't know where you go. And, and the fact is, this time if you have on a fixed income, four hundred one ks are going to get killed, killed because they can't even that four hundred one k market starts crashing. The market over nine thirty, you can't get out to the end of the day, and you can't even short. You can't even make money going down. What a piece of junk that is. I mean, 401k is just a roost. 401k is nothing more than the biggest skimming operation in this country. That's all it is, because they don't let you short it. Uh, they're, they're, those people are going to get hurt, really hurt. Right now, if I was in retirement, I'd be going. I don't know who you can go to. It's hard to find a good planner. 
but it's uh, I, I'd be going to a lot of cash and and, and uh, metals and uh, I don't know. I just would stay out of the market right now. That's the advice I, I gave that advice back. Remember the housing crash? I'll never forget. A guy calls me from Tampa and he says, "Geez, Phil, I'm a builder up here." He said, "I got a tremendous amount of construction going on." Blah blah blah. I said, "Dump it. Dump everything. Go to cash." And he called me back about three years later. He said, "You saved my life." He says, you, everybody thought I was nuts. He said, I was selling all my, my building lots, prime land. I was selling it all. And he said, you saved my life. Well, sometimes uh, by watching the tea leaves and reading the fundamentals and taking a look at what's going on in the technical side of all of this, and certainly following the big money, uh, can in fact be the saving grace. Toward that end, Phil, talk to us a bit about Phil's gang membership and and the notion of learning to watch the the trends that are taking place. And I don't mean trends based on what Larry Kudlow tells you or Jim Cramer or any of those people. I'm not talking about the reports that you're getting off of the front page of the National Enquirer, but rather technical analysis that really looks at certain signs and indicators that ride below the six o'clock news radar screen that are indicative of trends that are coming. Uh, How can people better learn to study all of that? And how can they learn to, on their own, begin managing their phone finances? And, and that's what we do. That's what we point out. We say, look, stop listening to, to these uh, jibber-jabbers on, on these financial TV shows. They're going to put you in a hole. For example, one of the biggest warnings uh, uh, is housing starts. Now, the biggest warning, of course, is when you yield inverts. Well, you saw what they did. They turned around and uninverted it middled with it. But you still have the ho- housing starts are a terrific indicator when they start going down, you know there's a problem. You also know durable goods. When those start going down, there's a real problem. And when you see the S&P or the Dow going up and you, and you see that the uh, – uh, and, and, and rates are starting to – uh, I'm sorry, the S&P keeps on going up but the, because that's t- and transports are going down, that tells you they're building inventory, but nobody's delivering it. Your transports are going down. I, what I watch for my gang every day is the, is the bond market. That is the, it's always right. It's never been wrong. It's always right. And, and I watch that bond like a hawk, those yields. And, and I, uh, between the two, I always watch the three-month treasury and the 10-year treasury. When those start crossing over, it's never wrong. For 50 years, it's always been correct. The last seven recessions, spot on. Watch that three-month treasury, that 10-year treasury, and as soon as that three-month treasury starts creeping up and it's, 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 up, it's uh, higher than, than the 10-year treasury, that's real trouble. And that, that's the big signal right there. And then your durable goods and your housing starts. And that's really it, other than you just watch the transportation. If those are going down and your S&P is going up, you know they're building big inventory. Remember back in the dot-com when they had all the fiber optics? They had so much fiber optics, and, and we could see it. And they just kept building fiber optics, building and manufacturing, and transports were going down. And I told everybody about a year before the market collapsed, I said, this thing is going down, man. Just, just look at the inventory they're building. You see, that's what they do. It's, too, it's so hard to turn it around when things start going bad. And when they keep building inventory, and it takes about 18 months to start really pulling it back. And when you see the transportation, IYT is the symbol, 
You see that? Just watch that chart. I wait. It goes down, and the S&P keeps going up. There's big trouble. So it's not that hard. It really isn't. Once you look at them for about a month, and just those three little signals, okay, uh, and you you'll know. You'll get a feel for it. You go, holy man, this thing really works. The key, of course, is to know what to look for, and in doing so, education is that key. Want to get more information? Reach out today online, philsgang.com. That's philsgang.com. There's an informative daily hour-long radio program. There's also educational materials, classes, and even software available to you at philsgang.com, where you can learn to trade like the big boys do. You can follow the trends, look at the more subtle economic indicators, Follow the big money and then make your own decisions to protect and benefit your own financial future. Online at philsgang.com. That's philsgang.com. And be sure to tune in to Phil's Gang radio program weekday afternoons at 12 noon here in the San Francisco Bay Area on AM 1220 KDOW, the Bay Area's business leader. Phil Grandy, we appreciate so much not only the historical perspective, but the future warning as well. Thanks for the time. Okay, I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.